Hello, everyone, and welcome to the second season of The Fourth Leg. This is your host, Philip Reiner. This series is focused on one of the most complex systems in the world today, nuclear command, control, and communications, and its increasingly complicated future. With this series, together with our partner Peter Hayes at the Nautilus Institute, we're going straight to the experts across multiple sectors to discuss the technical and policy challenges associated with NC3. Specifically, here in Season 2, we will discuss the necessity for a secure, global crisis communications capability. There's a great deal to cover, so let's get started. In keeping with the unique nature of our last episode, today's discussion is going to take a deep dive into another very technical element of this subject, formal methods. In this season of The Fourth Leg, we're diving deeper into the emerging risks for 21st century NC3 modernization efforts. What remains elusive are processes that will actually build technical trust into the system. For that, today we turn to Dr. Adam Wick, who leads the mobile security and system software program at the Portland-based company Galois. He specializes in system software and has worked on projects in mobile device security, secure operating system design and implementation, virtual private networks, you name it. He's also worked as part of the DARPA Cyber Fast Track project, amongst other high-level projects. Recently, Adam has been investigating fault detection, robust fault recovery, and counter-deception in unmanned vehicles. So he's got a lot to bring this conversation. We're looking forward to this. Let's swing right into it. Thank you, Adam, for joining us here today, and welcome to the Fourth Leg podcast. We appreciate you taking the time. Sure. It's great to be here. So as you know, and as I think our listeners know, all of this continues to build off of this idea that we could perhaps build a more secure crisis hotline system for the 21st century, something that is essentially an open source version of what is well known to be the traditional Moscow-Washington hotline that could potentially facilitate crisis communication between global leaders, potentially reduce the risk of, of nuclear conflict. This is the system we've been calling Catalink. You wrote a paper for the series. You were at the workshop that we conducted last fall. This is something that, you know, IST and, and the Nautilus Institute have been working on. It's available for everybody to take a look at. Adam's paper is, is up on those sites. For those who haven't had a chance to read the paper, Adam, if you could perhaps give folks a sense of, of what you dive into in the paper, but also I think there may be some folks out there who are already familiar with formal methods and what a formal method is and how it's applicable to securing digital systems. But if you give folks a sense of the paper and what are formal methods and how does it actually work? Sure. So formal methods, I mean, writ broadly, maybe I'll start there. Formal methods are where we take some foundational ideas from mathematics, from logic, and try to apply them to computer systems writ broadly. So that could be hardware, that could be software, that could be a mix of the two or combinations of systems. But the idea is, can we use mathematics and logic to specify things that we want to be true of the systems we're building, and then potentially prove that the things that we're building actually meet those specifications? And so the paper I wrote um, for, for the workshop was really taking sort of a survey of the state of the art of formal methods and where they could be applied immediately to the problems of developing the hotline that you described and Catalink broadly, and also where some things that are coming down the line in the future could be applied. Obviously, if we're talking about worst case scenarios where we want to have a high degree of trust in communication, um, both that the communication happens and that it's not being spoofed and all that sort of thing, we, we really care about making sure that the software and hardware does what it says it does. And formal methods are a really good way to start approaching that problem. So the, the immediate question, I think, for me when I first started to try to familiarize myself with this approach well, many questions, right? Many questions come up, but what are some real world examples of how formal methods are applied towards complex systems? For me, it was actually when we first started to, to think about who to bring into the workshop, it was brought to our attention by our counterparts at, at Google, you know, Eric Gross and Ron Minnick. They said, have you, have you guys talked to, to Galois? And are you familiar with the work they're doing with DARPA? What are some real world examples of the kinds of things that formal methods are applied against? 
So formal methods, I mean, to date, they've been applied in a number of things. So hardware classically, so when you're developing processor designs, for example, many of the processor instructions that people do, um, they formally verify that the implementation of those instruction matches what they say it does in the manual. Similarly, cryptography is frequently a big target of verification. And so, for example, Amazon has done quite a bit of work uh, with us, in fact, in verifying their S2N library that's used as sort of a core cryptographic piece of their uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, they take the view that cryptography is critical for cloud providers. And if they get the cloud cryptography wrong, then, oh, that's a big, big problem. So, so they've been really looking at cryptography as a, as a thing they want to formally verify. Adam, I was actually going to, uh, to ask, when thinking about the different approaches that are out there, the, the more popularized things that are commonly referred to in terms of trying to get to a higher level of reliability, security, et cetera, you hear folks talk about zero trust. You now are hearing reference to things like no code. Where does this fit in that mix? of when you work with somebody like Amazon to try and help them ensure that their cryptographic approaches are reliable and secure? How does, how does it fit in with all of these other approaches at the same time? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So it fits in a couple different ways. So, so one is it's always useful to take essentially what we call a belt and suspenders approach, right? So on the one hand, it's really great to do everything that you can to show that a particular piece of software does what it should. But then it's also great maybe not to trust that it does everything that it should. And both of those things are valuable and it's and it's worth doing both. So I think zero trust and formal verification actually come from a very similar place of, of paranoia or nervousness, right? In both cases, you want to, you know, go outside someone just telling you that everything's fine. You want to use mathematics to prove that something's fine, or you want to figure out the ways that you can minimally trust things and, and still be effective. I'll also say that, you know, zero trust is a great design philosophy, and, and I go to a lot of clients and try to teach them about the idea of zero trust or minimal trust. Um, but at the end of the day, there are going to be things that you have to trust. For example, in many cases, you know, one of the principles of zero trust is that you try to build firm boundaries between software pieces so that, you know, if something goes wrong in one, it can't infect the other. Um, well, those boundaries are enforced by software or hardware. And so why do you trust that those boundaries are appropriately enforced? Those are the places where things like formal methods are, are really the only answer, at least in my opinion, right? You need to trust those. Those are the core of all your trust arguments. And so bringing the, the steps of mathematical proof is warranted. Adam, it's hard to imagine uh, command and control systems that would be more in need of secure communications than those related to nuclear weapons and the communications between the commanders and their forces uh, and between leaders of nuclear weapon states in a crisis. That's the hotlines that Philip was referring to before. And it's, for me, after you know being an adult for the last five or six decades, it's also hard to imagine a time when we have less trust than we see at the moment uh, in much of the communications that we rely on. And also the general environment is not exactly characterized by trust today. Can you explain to us how a system like the nuclear command and control communication system that we use in the United States and that every nuclear weapon state has some form or other of, or just in general, how command and control systems are tested for this kind of security concern? So I can't speak for any of the, the command and control systems that any of our, our countries are are using. I can speak a little bit towards just embedded system software development, even in critical systems. So let's downscale a little bit to, for example, automotives, right? So our cars have huge numbers of processors and a huge amount of software running in them. And so how do people make sure that those are safe? And they do it through a few different mechanisms. One is you know, what we call an air gap. There's bits of the system that really have no need to talk to engine controllers, for example. And so there's just really no wire that connects those two bits. And so you don't necessarily have to worry about security across 
across that. I mean, that goes to the zero trust thing. In other cases, mostly it's a matter of trying a lot and testing. A, a lot of critical safety systems go through a huge amount of testing. They also go through a huge amount of process review. Um, and so many safety critical systems in particular, they both do testing of the artifacts, but they also do huge amounts of review about how did you build those artifacts? What tools did you use? Who was able to access those systems uh, and so on? The idea being that the combination of if you use the right tools and we do some testing, it's probably safe at the end. So two, two key words there, probably safe. I mean, how does the success of this testing strategy vary as a function of the complexity of these systems? I mean, you're presumably never always perfectly confident. Oh, yeah, no. Um, and, you know, we've seen that in some of the recalls and so forth that car manufacturers have been doing over the last decade or so when it comes to software control of engine systems, right? You know, they, they find a bug and they have to recall it. And that's because testing is hard. Like, and that's, in fact, you know, one of the things I called out in the paper is that testing is you're shooting a lot of darts at a very, very big dartboard, and you're hoping that you're catching all the interesting cases and you've made sure that everything works. And inevitably, things are missed. And in those cases, bad things can happen. I mean, one of the goals of safety review is to ensure that when these bugs occur, they are not catastrophic. There's a huge amount of paperwork that's generated to try to show that even if this component goes wrong, then the result is, for example, not loss of life. It's maybe loss of vehicle, but not loss of life. And, and all of these things are really looked into, but they are a matter of, in a sense, testing and paperwork, which is good, but I think we can do better. And I especially think we can do better in, in these sorts of systems that are so critical. So these NC3 systems are so critical just to the species that it's worth investing in these uh, additional mechanisms. Well, I actually really love the idea of recalling nuclear command and control communication systems. The, the problem, of course, is that in the real world test, when you're driving down the freeway in your nuclear war car and you come to the brink of nuclear war uh, and you're midair, you actually don't have the opportunity for a recall and, and you can't really test for the only real contingency that matters. You can test pre-war but never in the real stress. And, of course, by the time you find out that there's a, a problem, it's likely too late to do a recall. But I, I think in your paper you said that there are technologies we can apply to immediately prove critical properties of the core system's and emerging technologies that may be applicable in the future. Can you spell out what you meant by that in, in the current context? Sure. So when we think about building something like the like Catalink in particular, right, what we'd really love to get to is everything on that system is proven correct. So everything is, is true. We know exactly what it's supposed to do, and that is what that device does. And there are some tools for doing part of that right now. Um, you know, th there are programming languages these days. Rust is one. Go is another. There's, there's several that just by the nature of writing in those languages, you're free from any number of bugs that we could have run into in the past. So if you write in C, there's all sorts of memory errors that you can run into. If you use a higher level of languages, you're kind of freed from that uh, constraint because the, the tools that you're using prevent them. Similarly, there's some other tools all through both the hardware and software stack. So there's some very interesting tools um, that are coming out in terms of formally verifying components of hardware. There's some very good work out of uh, Australia, in fact, about uh, formally verifying core bits of your operating system. There's a project called SEL4 in particular, where they have, they have verified this entire substrate of an operating system. You know, so you start to see the pieces coming together. You know, in the end, what you want is a verified application running on a verified operating system, running on verified hardware. And we're starting to see pieces of that coming together or parts of that come together, which I think is pretty cool. The whole stack isn't there yet, but there's some projects going on. DARPA in particular has been doing quite a lot of research over the last decade in terms of how do we develop these high assurance systems. Um, and a lot of that stuff is very relevant to, to these sorts of applications. 
Yes, I actually remember in your paper there was a, a brilliant, um, I think the words you used were that, that it's turtles all the way down problem, that you've got to verify all these different levels, which, as you say, they stack on top of each other, the different layers, uh, and any one of which could undo you in a, in a real crisis. You don't have to attack all levels to really disable all levels, if I understand it correctly. And, and there are a number of elements, specifically the kind of algorithm you'd use for nuclear command and control that may not even exist at this point, let alone the, the prior levels. So the question becomes, we've got pieces of this puzzle. Where is the promise uh, in the near term? Because, you know, we're looking at real crises, real nuclear weapons in the near term. We don't want to wait for the next 20 years to do something about this and improve security. How do these... Uh, formal methods show us ways forward that would really increase the assured performance of these communication systems? Yeah, so there's a couple ways, and, and that's a really interesting question. So, I mean, there's always this problem of if you want to do a, a truly 100% verified system, there are all these places that you go to that you need to do this and that and the other thing. But I really do think that there's a huge value in taking the pieces you have, right? Um, just because you can't necessarily prove that the the hardware you've built is exactly what you expected it to be doesn't mean that there isn't value in proving that the software you're building on that hardware is proof. Because at the very least, that means your adversary is now constrained to trying to work on the hardware. And the software is really maybe not a, a thing for them to attack anymore. So at the very least, you help sort of push people into to boxes, which is helpful. I also think that there's a couple other things that are useful. So so one thing about formal methods and, and those tools is that they really force you to understand what you want to be true, right? Because it's, it's very easy in English to say things like, I want Catalink to be secure. Great. World peace would also be nice while we're at it. And so the question then becomes, well, what do you mean by secure? Well, okay, what I meant by secure is that I didn't want anyone to be able to forge messages. And I wanted to make sure that if I sent a message, it definitely got delivered. Okay, well, if that's what you meant by secure, then here are some proofs I can do, here's some evidence I can show you, and so forth. So just the exercise of formal methods and the thought of using formal specification can be just valuable on its own to really deeply understand what is it you want to be true of the system that you're building? And that's valuable. If I could just jump in, that's incredibly valuable. It's one of the pieces of the conversation we've continued to have with some of the folks who are thinking about what the next-gen architecture needs to look like, right? Like this question of forcing yourself to identify what you really needed to do, that's that's fascinating. And I think the, the other thing that, Peter, your, your question reminded me of was a conversation we had yesterday with the acting director of the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center at DOD, where he talked about building out platforms and infrastructure so that really the, the data necessary for executing these ML algorithms could be pushed all the way out to the edge. And so you create an immense attack surface when you do that. And if you think about command and control and you think about the different pieces of this all the way up that stack, right? Your vulnerabilities are extreme all the way through. And so how do you make sure that the information that perhaps is flowing from the edge up to the decision maker is flowing through systems that are actually secure? And it's one of those questions that I think really drove a lot of the thinking at the outset of our process with Eric Gross which is you've got to have a very simple device at the end of that chain that can be relied on so you can actually verify what's actually being said. What, Adam, per what Eric's talking about, per what Peter just asked, what's the precedent for actually using formal methods in these sorts of extremely complex systems? I know you talked about the Amazon commercial example. You talked about, you noted DARPA, and we've seen kind of the elections systems examples. What sort of systems have, have you seen that in terms of really, truly complex systems where formal methods have played a role? Yeah. So, so actually, that's a great question. And your example is, is interesting as well. So what I'm going to say is some work we did with DARPA on the on their Hackums project. And Hackums was a super interesting program for a number of reasons. But the, but the end goal of it was to create an unmanned system 
that was flying. Uh, in, in this case, it was either a, a quadcopter, like you imagine you see people flying around these days with a camera on it, or I believe they put it on a, a Boeing helicopter as well. But those are immensely complicated systems, right? Flying Flight control systems are really, really complicated. And our remit under Hackums was, how do we ensure that flight safety is maintained when we're potentially running open source code that's just in the wild. So in particular, in this example, we were running a flight control system on a computer that was at the same time running Linux and all the webcam software was running in that Linux uh, system. So the whole webcam was controlled by this operating system that was full featured, that had everything on it. How do we protect that from a hacker while it's in flight? And so the Hackums project in particular was a really interesting exercise in how can we break this problem down so that we're not eating the elephant, right? How can we break this down so that we don't have to verify the complete software stack of this entire huge system? And so what we did is we used um, some of the software I mentioned before. We used a system called SEL4 to put the Linux system running the webcam in a box. And all that box was really allowed to do was run the webcam. And then we secondly put some of the controls for the radio and we built them using some of our formal verification tools. Um, and the idea was to make sure that every time someone sent a message to this drone, it was validated against the specification for what messages to the drone should look like. And with these two things, first, putting, putting all that stuff in a box that we didn't really want to verify, and then also really, really focusing down on the input validation problem, we were able to completely keep attackers out of the helicopter and out of the UAV because they couldn't find a way to break in from the outside because we had we had verified message formats and made sure that the the signing and crypto on those messages was was right and then even when we gave them direct access to the OS running the webcam all they could do is mess around with the webcam the the UAV kept flying just fine so that's sort of where the application of formal methods is right now. And I think that speaks to, you know, some of the questions we mentioned earlier, right? So one of the tricks that formal methods teaches you is how can you put the stuff that you can't trust in a box? And then you maybe don't need to trust it anymore. Um, and then you really focus in on the bits that you really need to trust that are left over. It's fascinating, right? Because when thinking about Catalink and thinking about the core of the question that we're asking, it, it comes down to what you were just describing, the ability to actually kind of firewall it off and box it so that you can ensure that the networking and communication protocols are actually the secure piece, right? It, it was a conversation we recently had around these issues and, you know, the device itself is important, but the path that the, the data travels is, is even more critical. But what you're saying then, though, is that these these methods can be used for verifying and validating these communications protocols just as much as, as anything else. Yeah, and, and that's a great, interesting example, too, because we go back to the question of what is it that we're trying to do here, right? So one of the interesting things that we discussed at, at the meeting last fall is, do you want to trust your infrastructure or not? And so we could, you know, build some things with formal methods and with cryptography to ensure that we can make sure that a message we receive comes from the person we think it is without necessarily trusting the communications infrastructure that took the message from point A to point B. So we can make sure that, that you sent the message to me without necessarily trusting the internet or trusting radio waves or, or whatever it is that we're communicating over. But maybe we have to think about trusting that infrastructure or proving something about that infrastructure if we want to make sure that any message you send definitely gets to me. Um, because, you know, what if someone jams it or what if something breaks down in the middle? And so this is where that question of what are you trying to achieve here gets really, really interesting, right? Because especially with something like Catalink, it's really tempting to say, well, if I push a button and say, wait, hold up, you know, I really want that message to go to you and Peter. But 
in order to get that guarantee, well, that requires these other sort of things down the line, and and maybe we can't guarantee those. And so now we have to re-examine, can we actually achieve what we want to achieve, or do we have to use some other technologies to achieve that goal that we hadn't thought of yet? And so this is how this, these sorts of things sort of bounce back and forth between, well, this is what I want. Oh, wait, I can't prove it. Okay, maybe I can change what I want so that I can get it, right? And, and that's a really interesting exercise. Adam, can you describe for the listeners some of the automated tools that crypto practitioners might use to that end? Some of the tools I know are theorem provers, model checking tools, why are these tools particularly useful in providing that kind of assurance? And can you give us any examples of how you apply these to different kinds of failures, you know, the kind of pathological failures that come at the corners where of a system where things are, you know, there are, say, three or four different parameters of the operating system are all at their absolute extreme. And you weren't really designing for those conditions, but that's where you find yourself and that presents the opportunity for either attack or collapse sure um yeah let me let me give you sort of an overview of three broad sets of tools that are i think the ones that we use the most often i'm sure there is going to be an expert that's going to you know take me to task for not including a fourth but these are the three that that i go to so you mentioned theorem provers um theorem provers are essentially it's computer-aided proof is probably the best way to put it. So we may all remember, although possibly with some stress and anxiety, some of our old math classes where we were asked to prove things, you know, do geometry proofs or proofs by induction in algebra or, or whatever proof you remember. And we do all those by hand when we're taking classes and we say, well, this follows from this and this follows from this and that sort of thing. And the trick with hand proofs is that we are all human and we all make mistakes. And sometimes when we went to say, well, I'm going to do it for these five cases, by the time we get to the fourth, we forget that there was five and then we miss one and whatever. And what theorem provers are really designed to do is keep track of all of that information for you. And so they really help you go through the, the various things and check your work. And the idea is that theorem provers, they're completely human driven from this point of view of generating the proof, but they are completely automated in validating the proof. So I have to use my human intuition and reasoning to understand why a thing was true and prove it to the theorem prover. But once I've generated that proof, I can give it to you and you can use your theorem prover to check that, that I did it right. And so they're sort of hand-driven tools, but they're really useful for making sure that when I do a proof, I did it right. And there's a number of people that use these sorts of things for a variety of different reasons. Um, they're used to prove that code is correct. So you can use theorem provers to prove facts about program code. Um, but I've also seen them used to prove um, higher level things, right? For example, I think I have seen them used to prove that, you know, certain aspects of programming languages work the way that people think that they should work. Um, I believe they've also been used in any number of sort of core crypto protocol proofs to show that a third party can't, you know, reverse engineer some computation or so that sort of thing. But the takeaway for theorem provers is they're basically a way to help you do the proofs that you would do on with a pen and paper, but without actually making any mistakes along the way. So that's number one. The second thing you mentioned are model checkers. And model checkers are really good for what we call parallel systems. So systems where you have a bunch of different actors doing a bunch of different things and potentially trying to communicate with each other or achieve some end. Um, and they use a variety of techniques. And I will admit that model checkers is the, is the area of this that I am least familiar with to sort of help you prove that those things are true and give you counterexamples when they're not. So, for example, if you've got, you know, three people in a room and you've come up with some really interesting way for each of them to be convinced that the other is who they say they are, you sort of plug that protocol into your model checker. It checks all the different combinations of orderings of messages and that sort of thing to make sure that in all of those cases, you get what you wanted in the end. 
And there's a few different tools that do that sort of thing. My understanding is that they're largely used in sort of protocol uh, verification and distributed and concurrent system verification. So basically, systems where you have two or more parties that are trying to do something by passing messages back and forth, model checking is, is often a go-to technology for those sorts of proofs. The advantage of model checking and the advantage of the next thing I'm going to talk about is they don't necessarily require any human ingenuity to do the proof. You just sort of say, here's the system, here's the thing I think it's true, computer, figure it out. And then you don't really have to think about it again. Um, the downside of them is that sometimes they take a very long time, like as in they never come back to you. And so there's some art in giving them the inputs where they can um, provide you answers in a reasonable time frame. And then the last thing I would talk about is some technology that's really taken off in the last, I would say, 10 years or so, and it's sat in SMT solving or symbolic reasoning in general. And these are some solvers that have come into, into their own recently where you sort of start, instead of thinking about particular values or particular test cases, you start thinking of things symbolically. Um, so instead of saying, I'm going to compute this function over a number and then trying it with each number, you say, I'm going to think of a number and then sort of manipulate it using logical operations and that sort of thing. And then you try to use one of these solvers to show that your system is, is correct. And that's often where people are going lately. Some of the work that we've done with Amazon leans on satin S&T solvers quite heavily to verify that things are true. It's, it's a really cool technology. So those are sort of the three main ones that, that at least I think of when I think of formal methods tech as being applied today. Well, if there are two sort of broad categories of failure, the sort of probabilistic failures and the so-called corner failures in extreme conditions uh, in a complex system, when I think about MC3, you know, the routine day-to-day -day humdrum, let's send out a test message to make sure we have connectivity with our forces so we can get strike orders to them, or um, an hourly message over a nuclear hotline, you know, are you there kind of message, which is, you know, real world, that's what happens. It's the former, the routine MC3 constant communications over time, they're going to be most subject to probabilistic error but it's going to be the performance of the system in extreme conditions, that is actual crisis or wartime, where you get the pathological failure because everything will be happening at once. Uh, all the forces could be employed, have to be communicated with simultaneously, and you need to be talking, hopefully, to your adversary to make sure they don't nuke you by mistake or even intentionally. So... In, in those circumstances, how do those kinds of tools apply? And how do you manage especially the, the corner or pathological failure cases? Yeah, so, so this is where I come back to one of the things about formal methods and formal specification is that they really force you to be honest about the state of the world and the state of your assumptions. And so, for example, if I wanted to prove... Um, than a message would always get from me to you. At some point, the message is going to hit some sort of substrate, whether that be a wire, whether that be a radio wave, whatever it is. And in my proof, I'm going to say, well, it goes across that wire. Now, my proof is now contingent upon that actually happening. And so somewhere in my proof, there is under the assumption that when I put something on the wire, X, Y, and Z occurs, then everything is hunky-dory. Well, now I've really, really made it explicit the, the conditions under which this thing will work. And if it's not the case that you know the, the message is guaranteed to go through on that wire, well, then my proof doesn't hold. And then maybe the guarantees that I want don't hold. So then I have to go back and re-examine okay, what am I going to do if the message doesn't get through, right? How am I going to change my proof so that I don't require that guarantee anymore? And there's some, some interesting things you can do there. And that's, I think, where some of these things really come to fruition in formal methods is, is this realization that your proof is only as good as your assumptions, 
but it does force you to be very explicit about those assumptions. And so in your case, especially with things like probabilistic failure, which is really interesting and really hard, you start having to do interesting proofs about bounding the probabilities. So there's some very interesting work in safety in particular, and there's some interesting work in space communications or or space computation where you say, under the assumption that we have less than one or two or three random failures in this time frame, then I can prove that X, Y, and Z is true. And those are much harder proofs, and you have to do a lot more infrastructure building, and you have to be a lot more careful about your system design. Um, but it starts becoming really obvious about sort of what sort of probabilities you can tolerate. And at the end of the day, when you're engineering your system, everyone just needs to be real upfront about, you know, if you want five nines guarantees that this message is going to get from point A to point B, then that's really hard. And the proof requires this, that, and the other thing, which may be more expensive or may make the messaging more slow, but will provide you that guarantee that you care about. When I talk to folks in the nuclear weapons world about communication in crisis, the sort of ultimate example of the problem that we're talking about that you were just referring to is what I call the false white flag. This is when you're sending a message to say, you know, we want to stop firing. In other words, it's a war termination message. You're in the midst of a nuclear war, a small or big one. And the problem is, you know, these are the conditions of most extreme stress when most systems will have broken down and you suddenly get a message from the other side in the midst of nuclear detonations, you know, uh, let, let's stop firing, let's have a ceasefire. And that could be the ultimate nuclear deception uh, because it could be setting you up for missiles that are already on their way and more to flow, or it could be actually let's not end the world. So it's a very important message. And the irony is most people in this business don't want to talk about it because they say, well, if we're in that world, it's game over anyway, everything is lost. We don't even need to think about it, which is astounding to me, incredibly irresponsible. If you're going to have a system like this designed to annihilate the entire species and planet, then you better design it for the whole set of contingencies. So I mean, this is an incredibly important issue that you're, you're raising here. Yeah, and, and building in some of those questions is really important and, and really understanding where things sort of stop and start. I mean, to the point of, you know, your example is great because what I've just been talking about is just the technology under sending that message. It has nothing to do with the psychology of sending that message or the game theory of that message or trying to understand whether they were being honest or not, right? All I'm really saying is, well, the message was sent and it wasn't forged, right? Um, that's right, exactly. And, and that's really good information. Yeah, and the issue here is, let's say it's a U.S.-Russia shootout. Do we know if that white flag message came from the Chinese or from some non-state actor who's actually seeking a catalytic form of attack where they cause each of the states that are involved in nuclear war to continue or to start or to finish the job. So it could be a third party, not just one of the primary antagonists in a nuclear exchange. Yeah. So this is a a real-world, very important issue. Yeah, and, you know, some of the technologies that I'm talking about can help with the problem of making sure the message comes from the person that you you think it's coming from. But it can't know the psychology of that person, and it can't know that they're being honest or dishonest or anything like that. I mean, that comes down to, to you know, diplomacy and politics and, and that. And, and I can't do any of that in a theorem prover, sadly enough. The thing that I wanted to, to also jump on with what you were talking about, Adam, comes to something else that you mentioned in your paper, which is about the agile ability to kind of, so yes, you need to clearly define the assumptions, right? Mm-hmm. You need to maybe be able to adapt a little bit as those assumptions change. As you mentioned, the wire, like in a NC3 context, the wire may not be there for the message to travel over. So how does that affect your proof? Stratcom in the United States may be a, a singular example, but I doubt it. I think other modernization efforts for NC3 around the world are considering similar things. Stratcom is trying to figure out how to build a next-gen architecture that is responsive, that is agile, 
uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? Throw whatever adjective in there you want to. That requires an architecture that is changing, right? So it's not just what's tacked onto the architecture. It's the actual architecture itself has to be able to shape shift. Right. So you note in your paper, right? And, I, and I'll just read it. It proves that validators evidence that a system continues to work in the presence of small changes. That's a fascinating notion, right? So even as the system itself may morph, adapt, upgrade, et cetera, you can still validate it via the proof and the formal method. If you could speak to that a little bit, how does that actually work? Yeah, sure. So as it turns out, when you're doing proofs um, and proofs of code in particular, a lot of things come down to the structure of the code rather than the small details. So here's an extremely simple example. You know, you're doing some computation and the formula used to say, compute two times X and then add X. And then later on, someone says, well, that was dumb. I'm just going to change that to be three times X. And, you know, you, you can sit down and, and in your head do the math and then you go, oh, yeah, that was right. And actually, a bunch of the solvers and theorem provers are really good at doing that sort of simple mathematical simplification. And they can just do those proofs for you and then you don't have to worry about it. So, you know, again, some of the examples we do on Amazon's crypto code, they are run every time someone makes a change in the code. And in many cases, no one has to redo the proofs because the shape of the algorithm being used is the same. It's just some maybe small detail in, in how the math is actually being performed. And that doesn't require human intervention to change the proof. And so these things can be flexible to small changes in the system. Now, I'll highlight small, right? Like if you completely restructure your system, um, you know, the proof probably isn't going to follow you. So there, there is a point where you have to go back and start changing your proof to adjust. But, you know, if you take a look at the way that systems change over time, in many cases, the way things change is they're added to so it's not that the system used to be able to do four things. Well, now it can do five things. And it's not like we went back and changed the four things it used to be able to do. We just added this new one. Um, and so in a sense, you know, you don't need to go back and reprove those four things again. You still have that proof. What you need to do is add the proof of the new thing. Where that gets tricky, of course, is if the new thing actually breaks the assumptions you made in the four previous things. And in fact, I would argue that the fact that you have to do a lot of work there is, in fact, a great thing, because now you actually have to think about the consequences of adding this new system. And more thought is better when it comes to these sorts of supercritical systems. Adam, I'd like to drill down a bit in your paper where you said that the guarantee provided by a tool like Software Analysis Workbench mm -hmm. is enormous compared to our ability to test software and have a core understanding of what the system's assumptions are and how they're supported. And that that is really a critical assurance for making risk assessment in systems like NC3. Can you dissect that a bit for our listeners as to what you were getting at there? Yeah, so there's there's a couple points there. I, th I think one we've talked about before, which is that when you use these tools, you have to be extremely precise about what it is you're trying to prove. And, and that's sort of towards the, the latter part of the quote that you read. It's, you know, these tools really get you to, to dive deep in what a specification is. Towards the first part about testing, I, I continue to try to find a really great example, but I will give you this example. So imagine that I have a function in my system, um, and what that function does is it multiplies a number by two, a number that you give it, and then it adds one. So it's 2x plus one for, for those of you who want some algebra. And there is this thing I want to be true about that. And what I want to be true about that is that any answer it gives me is odd. All right, let's think about this. Now, Testing, what do you do? Well, you think of some interesting numbers and you run it through and you see if they're odd. So I might say, you know, let's try zero because zero is always interesting. Well, zero times two is zero. If I add one, I get one. One is odd. Okay, cool. All right, now maybe I'll choose an even number and see if it's true. All right, so I'm going to pick two. Two times two is four plus one. That's five. Okay, that's also odd. And maybe I'll think of a bunch of examples and I'll write them down and I'll test my software uh, by running each of those examples and making sure that the function is returns an odd value. Okay, neat. 
But the trouble, of course, is that I only have so much time to write down those test cases. Um, and so maybe I write 10 or 20 or 30 or even 100. Um, but the trouble is there's a lot of numbers out there, right? If you think of a modern processor having, you know, 2 to the 64 as its uh, native word size, right? That's a lot of numbers if you plug that in. And so I'm testing like a vanishingly small amount of the, the space that this function executes under. There are some more advanced testing tools. There are there's things called property-based testers, um, where you can just explicitly state, here's how to manufacture a number, just here's how to pick a random number, and here's this property I want to be true. The property is that the output of this function is odd. Um, just generate 1,000, 10,000 random numbers and check. But again, the problem is even with 10,000 numbers or 100,000 numbers, we're still exploring a vanishingly small uh, percent of the possible numbers that could be given to this function. And so what formal methods does is give you the opportunity to prove it so that either, you know, I've heard people say that you test every possible example, but the better way, at least in my mind, is so that you can show that the number doesn't really matter. The thing is true regardless. And so there's a bunch of different tools that you might choose to say, well, okay, mathematically, if I take an even number and multiply it by two, I get an even number. If I take an odd number and multiply it by two, I also get an even number. And if I add one to any even number, I get an odd number. And so if I walk through my function and I do that proof, I figure out, well, it doesn't matter what number I give it. It's always true. All right, I'm done. And that gives you the effect of testing every possible number without actually having to go through the exercise of testing every possible number. So is, is this a problem that could ultimately be solved by quantum computing? Uh, and would quantum computing in turn cause new crypto insecurity, at least for some nuclear weapons, uh, at least for some of the nuclear weapon states that may not be quantum capable at that time? So there are some places in quantum computing where, where quantum computing can allow you to essentially sort of arrive at an answer without necessarily exploring the whole space as you would in, in classical computing. And there are some cases where quantum computing really can have a significant effect on certain cryptographic functions. And in fact, there, there's an ongoing effort at uh, NIST right now, the, the National Institute of Standards and technology that is looking at what they call post-quantum cryptography. So this is cryptography that is proof against these sorts of quantum attacks. In, in the example that I'm showing, the testing, that's a really good question. My intuition is that quantum uh, computing has some relevance to doing some simulations in particular of what might happen in certain cases or what precondition might have caused something to occur. But really, when you have a what the situation where I'm talking about, where you have a, a program and you want to make sure that it holds some property, I think what you really are looking at is testing and proof. So I want to shift gears a little bit and go to a question of further instances of, of where failures maybe have occurred. So we've talked a little bit about, and you go into this a little bit in the paper in terms of corner case failures. Can you can you think of in in complex communication systems in addition to the ones that you mentioned? But also, I'd be very very curious in terms of as you know, sitting a Galois to the extent that you guys can speak to it, how you've grappled with, and this goes on in large part to some of the stuff that we've been talking about with with Eric, is what sorts of tampering or external sorts of uh, maybe even nation state level attacks. Have you seen against these sorts of systems that have been formally proven? How has it affected performance, effectiveness, et cetera? Yeah, that, I mean, that's a pretty broad question. So, I mean, one thing with formal methods and with any security engineering that you think about is you always have to worry about, are you asking the right question? You know, one of the interesting that things that has happened over the last five or 10 years is you, is you think about some of the Intel processor bugs that have popped out or some of the, the things like that. And those are unintentional. Um, no one you know, expected that. I, I, at least I don't believe that they were caused by anyone. They're just, you know, someone made a mistake. 
And a bunch of proofs had to be updated, or a bunch of systems had to be modified to operate in a much slower mode than they used to, um, just to mitigate the fact that the processor was broken, right? Because a bunch of proofs just said, well, we're going to assume that the Intel manual, for example, is a completely correct specification of how uh, an Intel processor behaves. And then when we find that maybe that's not so much true, we have to go back and check that assumption and go, uh-oh, how do we need to change the way that we're, that we're operating? And so there's been a bunch of things that have popped up, to my knowledge, in cases of, oh, we never even thought that that could go wrong, right? And so there is this interesting exercise in, in trying to understand what all your assumptions are, and even the sort of deeply implicit assumptions about how the world works and, and what state your system is in. I think one of the, the interesting security questions that's popped up both in the commercial world as well as the government world are things like attacks via suppliers. So I, I purchase something from a third party to integrate into my solution, being sure that you know no one has messed with that supplier uh, in a way that that interferes with the how my system operates, and that goes to this whole new notion of zero trust. But but those are sort of the interesting things. That being said, um, I will say the state of the art in software development is improving, but is perhaps not as improved as we necessarily want it to be. There's a lot of sort of low-hanging fruit in a lot of systems, when it, especially when it comes to input validation. So if you're going to take input from anyone in the world, you better make sure that the thing that reads in and, and understands that input is 100% right. Because if there's any flaw, there's all sorts of tools to help people find what that flaw is. And so... You know, as much as I, we start thinking of these extremely complicated cases of supplier threats or strange uh, physics that occurs, particularly around nuclear weapons, um, you know, it, it's also worth making sure that we pay attention to the details of, you know, just classical attacks against computer systems. In fact, in your paper, in that stack of verified systems, one of the things you referred to is how do you handle proofs about implementation when even the core boot hardware and software may be insecure in computer chips. And I think what you uh, said at the time was that all memory accesses are to a safe allocated region. And perhaps the scariest paper at our October 2019 workshop, which you attended, was delivered by Ron Minich, uh, who we did a podcast with uh, not long ago, and, and listeners can look up that uh, paper and the podcast. I think his business card said, says something like, high wizard or high priest of core boot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ron really is, is responsible for a lot of this stuff at a global level in the industry. He explained to, I think, a lot of really aghast people in the room, pretty sophisticated users that their computers were probably completely insecure and always had been and were getting worse. So, you know, that verification at the moment is pretty weak in terms of the deployed fleets of hardware that support communication systems and are protected by these protocols. What's the likelihood that your software has been tampered with and how would you know if it's been mucked around with by some malevolent actor or even just someone who's playing with you? Yeah, so that is a hugely challenging problem. And, and you know, that's why one of the things we've discussed when we've, we've talked about Catalink is keeping Catalink small. You know, the, the larger your system is, the more entry points there are for someone to, to start injecting things that you don't want into your processes or into your system. If you're if you're looking at something the size of a, a full Windows computer, there's a lot of software coming from a lot of different places, and that doesn't even get into the hardware, which is also a lot of hardware coming in from a lot of different places. Uh, and so when we were talking about Catalink, you know, one of the big focuses is, you know, Catalink needs to be small. The hardware needs to be small in the sense of, not very complicated and from a small number of vendors, ideally. The software needs to be small and that sort of thing because you need to have some ability to keep a handle on you know, where are updates coming from and who are those updates and is someone reviewing those updates and that sort of thing, which is 
honestly, it's just a really, really big problem. You know, formal methods tools always run into this problem of if my theorem prover says that something is true, well, why did I trust the theorem prover? And this is where it starts getting into that sort of turtles all the way down problem, right? Well, in many cases, theorem provers are built on a very small core set of axioms that they believe they're true. In some cases, like just two or three axioms. And then they build this larger infrastructure on top of those two or three axioms. And the idea is, well, all we're really trusting is that this theorem prover implements those two or three core axioms correctly. And maybe we can review that in the source code when we're doing the proof. But it comes down to that level of detail. And that's Again, why, why these notions of separation and zero trust are so core and, and this desire to keep things small are so core is so that you can maybe get a handle on this problem. You know, some of the things can be solved with some technologies, although, again, now you're going to go back and ask me why those technologies are safe. But, you know, for example, modern version control for software does keep a pretty good chain of evidence that you understand all the modifications that happened and where those modifications came from, or at the very least, who claimed to have made those modifications. There's some possibility of forgery in there. But at least you know sort of the the history of that piece of software over time, and you can go back and, and replay that history and go through all those changes. But again, now you're back to the question of, well, why do you trust your version control software? Well, because of reasons. Um, and, you know, ideally we will someday get to a world where things like Catalink, we can say that not just every line of code or every line in the hardware description is verified, but all the tools that were used to build that code and put that code on the device were also verified. All the tools used to manufacture the chips and the boards, those were all verified and validated and checked and all that wonderful stuff. Right now we have pieces. Maybe we'll get there someday, but the pieces are pretty good and they're worth using. Well, Adam, I thought maybe we could ask one last question here at the end that gets to the core of the Catalink challenge, which is that this has to be an international approach, right? And what you've relayed here is some fairly complex stuff. It may not necessarily be an approach that's broadly understood, and we've talked about this a little bit. So I was wondering if maybe you could speak to how well understood these formal methods are around the world, how we can potentially make sure that we're using this in an NC3 context going forward, raise awareness, number one, of, of how these could potentially be useful for ensuring that these systems actually work the way they're supposed to, particularly on this communications piece so that leaders can ratchet down potentially escalatory situations. What, what's your thought on how this is, is disseminated, how these tools are utilized, and how we can better make sure that they're, they're used for the right purposes all, all around the world, not just here in the U.S.? Yeah, so I have, I have two answers to that. Um, one of which is unsatisfying and the other which is depressing. So the unsatisfying answer is formal methods is an international uh, research and uh, engineering effort. Um, there are communities all across the world doing interesting work in formal methods. And so the, the tools and techniques of formal methods are global. Some of the tools are, are a little more focused in different countries because of the, the nature of how we do academic research and how software engineering works. You know, your advisor invented a tool, so you started using that tool, and then you taught your students that tool. And so, you know, these pockets of particular tooling have popped up around the world. But the core techniques of it are, are pretty global. The depressing answer is, is a bit more philosophical, which is one of the things that we've talked about with Catalink is that it's, it's not a system where you want to have one supplier, because then there'll always be a worry about who that supplier is and who can influence that supplier. And so really what Catalink needs to be is, more than anything, a design that can be implemented by different people using their own you know, domestic capabilities to whatever extent they trust. And then you come to the question of how do you communicate designs effectively? And that's hard, right? People who speak English do not communicate well, even though they speak English. And then when you add a language barrier in there, it's even worse. And when you're talking about these very complex designs of systems, which include things like graphics and text and cryptography and trust and hardware designs and so forth, you know, how do I communicate 
all of those specifications to someone completely correctly and clearly. You know, natural language is kind of bad at that. We're, we get vague, we get nonspecific. And one answer to that is mathematics and formal specifications. Um, and the idea there being, if, if it's in math, math is pretty universal um, at least across humanity. And if I give you a mathematical formula, there isn't necessarily a language barrier innate in that formula. And so maybe these techniques, while they may be complex and, and may require some more training to understand, maybe they are the best way to very clearly and very concisely describe to someone who speaks a completely different language what it is that you meant and I think that's actually a fantastic place to end it. I know you mentioned that it might be a little bit depressing, but I actually think there's a little bit of hope in there, though, too, right? That, that while challenging, that may not necessarily be insurmountable. I think that's, you know, it's a challenge that one can take on and try and tackle. Yeah. So perhaps, you know, daunting, but I, I think perhaps doable at the same time. Well, Adam, thank you so much for your time. I personally, out of all of the, the various pieces of the Catalina conversation and trying to figure out how to build something that's relatively more secure, I think this is one of the most fascinating elements that we can add into the conversation that really could take it from what could be somewhat reliable to something much more, well, as you put it, verified. So thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate it. Sure. This was a lot of fun and it's great to be here. Thanks again, Adam. As always, thanks to our listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode of The Fourth Leg. Until then, please subscribe to the pod. Thanks to everyone for listening. We look forward to your feedback.